went to Kennedy Elementary School in Hastings, Minnesota. Kennedy Elementary. No woo-hoos. None of you are from Kennedy Elementary? All right, I was from Kennedy Elementary. One of the distinguishing characteristics, maybe the only one, of Kennedy Elementary is that we were roughly all in the same economic class. Kennedy was made up of a bunch of us country kids. I was one of those. And then there was also most of the people from the neighborhoods in Hastings where roughly most of the people were of the same economic class. The only differences I really remember growing up between the haves and the have-nots is that some of the kids had those big boxes of crayons with the built-in sharpener. Yeah. And some of them had the real lunch boxes, Star Wars, and the Fonz. The Fonz. Some of you guys might know the Fonz. A. Can I get an amen from the Fonz fans? All right. Well, anyway, uh, things began to, to change, though, in junior high. Um, we were really insulated, and I kind of thought that's just the only differences among us were those, the crayons and the, you know, the Fonz boxes and all those kind of things. But in junior high, all of the elementary schools came together. So all four of the elementary schools came together in junior high. So it was us along with the Pinecrest kids and the Cooper kids and Elizabeth Ann Seton, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton kids. Well, the St. Elizabeth Ann Seton kids, they came from a number of different economic backgrounds. What, had, what they had in common, they came from all over town, but what they had in common is their parents valued a Catholic education. Now the Pinecrest kids, Pinecrest kids, those were the rich kids. How do I know they were the rich kids? Listen to this. Some of the guys could afford both Lee jeans and Levi 501s. I'm like, no way. Some of them could afford Nikes and member-only jackets. So, though, I mean, they were the rich kids. They lived on the golf course. They were in the new part of town. Now, fortunately for us Kennedy kids, we were the middle class. And we had the Cooper Poopers that we could look down on. The poor Cooper Poopers. So that's where we fit. You know, I figured we were the middle class. Well, that was my junior high thinking. But we were still pretty insulated until in high school I went on that Mexico trip that I talk about so much, and I talk about it so much because it changed my life. My eyes were open to the fact that we're not as middle class as we think we are, certainly not by the world's standards. But yet I was still pretty insulated. Because on that trip, what we would do when we'd go down there is we'd stay in the U.S. And then we'd go each day across the border and we would do projects. And they moved us around a lot, so we were never in one spot for any given time. But we did all of our eating, most of our, our, well, all of our sleeping on the U.S. side, all of our worshiping on the U.S. side. And so I still had these, these stereotypes and these, these things that were in my head about different classes. We were the rich, they were the poor, Right? It wasn't until I was in college and they asked me to, to oversee one of the overnights where we ate and we slept and we worshipped and we got to know people as individuals that my eyes started to open even more. When I got to know people not as the poor, but I got to know Josue and I got to know Soli and I got to know Angel and I got to know Patel and I got to know Karen and I got to know Nata. I got to know them as individuals. And it was around that Lopez family table where I began to think about class in an altogether different way. Altogether different way. And as I look out, I know that this is true for so many of you as well. Because with so many of you, you've sat around tables with homeless individuals. You've sat around tables with refugees. You've sat around tables with people who come from very different economic circumstances. And you realize you can't just put blanket statements on people, can you? 
We need to get to know them as individuals. Well, four weeks ago, we launched a series on reconciliation. And so far, we've discussed politics. We've discussed tensions between men and women. We've looked at different religious beliefs and preferences. Well, today, we're going to talk about this big gap that comes to class, this dividing wall of class. And we're going to start with the passage of the Bible that we read just about every communion Sunday. It's the letter that we've been studying throughout the series. It's 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting with verse 23. I want to let you know as we're turning there, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love for you to go home with one absolutely free today. We keep a stack of them there at that table in the back, and we'd love for you to to take one home with you, even if you went to Pinecrest, even if you went to Cooper. St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, you have a slightly different Bible, so we'll... we'll, uh, We can help you with that, though, if you'd like. All right. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, starting with verse 23. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We read this passage just about every time that we do communion here as a church. One of the verses we don't read is a verse that comes just a couple verses before this. And I want to draw our attention to here for this this topic. And that's verse 20. It's in that same passage, but it's verse 20. And it says, when you come together... It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. That comes before the passage we just read. With a show of hands, how many of you know you can gather at the Lord's table and not celebrate Holy Communion? Okay, only two of us. Then I'm really glad I'm giving this talk. Three of us. All right, because this is true. You can gather at the Lord's table and not commemorate Holy Communion. So here's a question. Let's dive right into this. I encourage you to open your um, purple or your notes or your bulletin. Take out your purple insert and write this down. When we come together, when we come together, this is an important question. When we come together on Communion Sunday, is it the Lord's Supper that we're eating? When we come together on Communion Sunday, is it the Lord's Supper we're eating or are we falling into some of the same traps that the Corinthians were guilty of? In week one, we spent some time talking and thinking and reflecting on how First Communion or First Corinthians opens. In that letter, Paul addresses it to the sanctified saints. He says, "You guys are the sanctified saints." And in the first nine verses of that letter, Paul mentions Christ nine times. Throughout the letter, Paul makes the case: followers of Jesus, these sanctified saints, we should look different in the ways that Jesus looked different than the culture around us. And that includes how we behave ourselves when we gather around tables. Includes that. In fact, that's what's highlighted in the passage we read today. Well, before we gather around the Lord's table with Molly later in the service, let's make sure we got a clear picture of what this means. Let's begin by looking at three characteristics of the Lord's table that you can find in three consecutive chapters of 1 Corinthians. Let's start with chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to, to chapter 10. And as you're turning there, here's the, 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 what I want to draw from this chapter. And there's a place to write this down too. Idols at the Lord's table, idols aren't elevated, and the vulnerable 
aren't exploited. At the Lord's table, idols aren't elevated and the vulnerable aren't exploited. Last week, we saw that it was very common in Corinth to encounter food that had been offered to idols. It was, it was so common that there was actually a word for it. We came across that word last week in chapter 8. In chapter 8, Paul made the point, as you come across this food that's, that's been offered up to an idol, you don't have to be afraid of it. It's not like those creepy dolls in the horror movies. Don't let those in your house because they're going to start jump scaring you. They're going to like climb up the walls and all that kind of stuff, right? Not so with meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. It's not like that meat gets possessed and it's going to pop out under your bed or you put it in the rocking chair and then it's in another part of the room, right? It's not like those creepy dolls. It's just food. He says the issue is not the venue or the issue is the venue. It's not the menu. Well, throughout the series, we've been recommending this commentary right here from um, a guy named N.T. Wright. So have you had a chance to look at this? There's some good stuff in here. And what he does, he takes a little section of 1 Corinthians, and then he explains it. Well, as he was explaining this section, one of the things that he said is there's an actual restaurant in Rome that's built on an old Roman temple. And he, and, and he says that in that time and in that place that, that 1 Corinthians um, happened in, in that context, many of the temples were the restaurants. Many of the temples were the restaurants. People would come to a temple and you'd have an animal to sacrifice. And sometimes that ritual that you would do would involve cooking that thing up and eating it right there. So it's kind of like going to a restaurant. Think Osaka. Only you're worshiping an idol first and then you're cutting it up and doing some kind of ritual. Other than that, it's pretty much the same. Well, there weren't a lot of families... Um, that could eat an entire animal because you'd bring this whole animal, right? And you'd sacrifice this thing and then you, you, you'd try to eat it. And unless you had teenage boys, there was always leftovers, right? And so they would take these leftovers, the, the people at the temple, they'd take these leftovers and then they'd go sell them at the market. So there was a really good chance if you went to the meat market, you were going to come back with food that had been sacrificed to an idol. So that was one problem as we're getting in here. I have to do some of this background for chapter 10 because it's such a different context than ours. So, so there, that was one of the problems. If you're, if you're getting food, there's a chance it's been sacrificed to an idol. Another problem is that people were so status conscious in Corinth. And this was a problem because the temple, was, temple life was central to your status. Especially if you were a Roman citizen. You were expected to show up there. You were expected to show up there. If you were a Roman citizen and you lived in Corinth, you had exclusive rights into the right temples. And societal expectations would... would would almost force you to participate in temple meals that honored the Roman emperor and members of his family. So knowing all this, knowing that you're almost guaranteed if you buy meat, that some of it was sacrificed to an idol, knowing that there's all this pressure that people feel like they've got to go to the temple and participate in something, otherwise you're going to be left out. Paul handles this brilliantly, brilliantly. He's got hard things that he needs to say, And he starts where he knows there's common ground. And that's what we saw in chapter 8. He starts really easy. He says, everybody knows that that meat isn't getting possessed. It's okay to just eat the the, the meat. He, He says that. But now he starts to build on that. And he really starts laying a foundation for those hard words yet to come. An important part of that foundation, then, is where we're going to pick up in the text. And he reminds the Corinthians of their sacred history. He goes all the way back to the time of Moses to the time when God delivered the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And as he does, look at this now. 
Look how many times food and drink come up in this passage that comes up way before he gets to what he says about the Lord's Supper. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's read verses 1 through 7. For I want you to know, brothers, he writes, that our fathers were all under the cloud and, and all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Pause for just a second. This is in the time of Moses. This is before Jesus came as a baby. Paul saw Christ present and at work in ways that others couldn't see. All right, picking back up uh, with verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for who? For us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Now, Paul is using some real soft language here. It's going to get harder in just a second when he says play. That word play is loaded. As you're going to see in just a minute, he's talking about the kind of play that was common in the Corinthians' temples. There were consensual hookups with multiple partners, but that's not all. There was also the exploitation of women and girls and boys in the form of temple prostitution. Paul draws a direct line from what happened in the time of Moses to what was happening in those temples there in Corinth. All right, picking up with verse 8. Let's go 8 through 11. We, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. This is what he says. He makes these connections. By the time Paul arrives here, he makes it clear that things weren't as simple as they thought. There were a number of people in Corinth that were coming into this new faith in Christ And they were just so excited about all the freedom that was there with this new faith. And they believed that this freedom in Christ is what they were exercising when they didn't have to freak out about which meat you ate and which you didn't eat. They're like, oh, this is great. This is our freedom in Christ. They were free, they thought, from all these rules and rituals and fears that the unenlightened people were fearing. Well, for those status-conscious Christians, they might have felt Like we are early adopters in a great new religion because this religion is trending the same way as our culture. We can do what the people in our culture do and we can do it with a clear conscience because there's freedom to do so. That's what the thinking was. But Paul takes these new Christians on a journey here in these couple chapters that take Christians sometimes a lot of years to really understand. And it's a journey that takes us full circle. Here's how I worded it. I I, I chose these words really, really carefully. Does freedom in Christ lead followers of Jesus away from God's commands 
Or does it lead us to pursue holiness with a new appreciation for glory? What I mean by that is a lot of times we come to faith and it's amazing because we realize as we come to faith, there is absolutely nothing we can do to earn God's love. It's there. There's absolutely nothing we can do to make ourselves holy. It's a gift. And it's a beautiful thing. And we realize I'm free. I'm free from having to get all the religion right. I'm free. I'm free from having to know all the rules and making sure I don't mess up on any of them. I'm free from having to clear that high bar that I can't clear. But as we mature in faith, what happens? We begin to realize all those rules, those instructions, they're there for our good. They're there for the good of society. They're they're there for reasons. And that God can be trusted. Here's an absolutely horrible example, but I'll give it anyway because it's the best I got today. Let's say you got a grandma, and your grandma's got a beach house in Florida. And she's given you an open invitation by grace to stay at the house for free. She's got a few rules. Some of the rules you don't understand until later. When you realize, oh, wait, that rule about shutting the screen door, that's keeping the mosquitoes out. That rule about rinsing the dishes before you put them in the sink, it's not arbitrary. It keeps the roaches out of the kitchen, right? Horrible example, best I had. All right, let's get back to the text. Look at what Paul says. Look what Paul says about behaviors that continue to trip God's people up. Paul says to flee from them. He says to flee from them. He says, don't misuse freedom in Christ to flirt with the gray areas. If you see a situation that could pull you away from God, If you see a situation that could dishonor his name, put some distance between yourself and it. Here's what he says. See for yourself, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 14 through 17. Therefore, my beloved, flee, flee from idolatry. And look at the words he uses here. Again, this is before he ever starts talking about communion. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is it not participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. I want to make two quick points here based on this passage. The first one is this. There's a reason why at Emmanuel that we don't, when you come forward for communion, we don't say, here's the line for those who have a gluten allergy. Here's a line for those that can't take alcohol. We have a juice option for you, but over here is the line for people that can have a different kind of bread or can have wine. It's this. When we come forward, we want people to just come forward together. One body, one cup. That's one of the things I want to pull from this passage. The second is this. As I was rereading this passage, all this imagery about the body and blood of Christ, it started leaping off the page There are so many reasons why the Bible has stood the test of time. And one of them is, it's just brilliantly constructed literature. The way Paul puts all this together is absolutely stunning. Paul starts with common ground. Then he builds on it with an example from sacred history. Then he weaves in specific language about bread and wine. 
Throughout it, he contrasts what should happen and what did happen in the time of Moses so people can all point those fingers. And as they're pointing those fingers, then it's reflected back in the mirror at them and they're going, oh, we're doing the same thing when it comes to idolatry and eating and drinking. And then through it all, he continues to build on the letter's overall theme, the theme of unity in Christ. And then, if that wasn't enough, along the way, he pauses to summarize what he's been saying in verses like this. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. He says, so, whatever you drink or eat, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And that brings us then to chapter 11. Eating food that's been sacrificed to idols wasn't the only way that Corinthians were conforming to the culture around them. Please write this down and then let's talk about it. At the Lord's table, people aren't priced out of participation. At the Lord's table, people aren't priced out of participation. As we've mentioned several times in the series, Corinth was a destination for celebrity speakers who would charge their audience a fee. Some of their talks was just, were just entertainment. Some of their talks were about new ideas. Many of their talks were about how you go up the social status ladder. N.T. Wright says this about them. Such teachers always ask for money. And when people showed a special interest in their work, they invited them into more intimate classes for which there was, of course, always a higher fee. That's not how the gospel of Jesus worked. It was for everybody, not just those who could afford it. It was common in Corinth for the haves to huddle with other haves. And after carefully laying a firm foundation, Paul is now ready to call the Corinthians out for the same. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and let's read the verses that come right before the one we opened with. So these are the verses immediately leading up to the passage that we read about the Lord's Supper. So let's go with verses 17 through 22. But in the following instructions, he says to the Corinthians now, after laying that foundation, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there's divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. I will not. Well, let me hit pause there and we'll come back to the, the 20, uh, 23 and beyond. Today, when most churches observe the Lord's Supper, we don't have a whole meal together. And it appears as though in that time and that place, that's what was going on. They would have an entire meal, and then during that meal at some point, they would take one of the loaves of bread, they would take a cup, they would bless those, and they participate in what they thought was the Lord's Supper. But apparently in Corinth, what they were doing was conforming to their culture as they did these rituals. The haves were huddling with other haves. 
another possible focal point this week. You know, we, one of the things we talk about is um, throughout this series we've been saying we'd encourage people to fast. A possible focal point for fasting this week is to, as you're praying and fasting, reflect on whether you're huddling just with halves or if you're also gathering around tables with also the people that society would say are the have-nots. Another thing I'd encourage you to do too is just straight up think about the hunger too as you're fasting to recognize that's people's every day all around the world. All right, well, as is the case today in the ancient world, the haves, because they had, would sometimes do things for the have-nots. But it was common, this is really important, it was common in that time and in that place, in the haves did something for the have-nots, they made it clear, I'm doing something for the have-nots. Look at me. Look what I'm doing for those people. And they would do it in such a way that didn't reflect dignity, didn't reflect respect at all. Here's one of the ways that would play out. If you were a have back in that time, that place, um, and, and you hosted an event at your house, usually all you do is you'd have a room where you would ask all the other haves to come. And in that room, there would be the best food and the best drink. And then there'd be another room where the Kennedy kids could go, and then the Cooper Poopers, and, and so on and so on, right? And in those rooms, the food wasn't quite as good. The drink wasn't quite as good. Now, I've heard several different takes on whether or not that was happening. That's exactly what was happening. And in, in this case, we don't know for sure. But what we do know is things in Corinth were not as they should have been. And there was an economic component to that. What is clear is that what they were doing wasn't the kind of table fellowship that Jesus modeled for us. Now hear these words once again in their context. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We've been invited into a different kind of family. At the Lord's table, we treat everyone with dignity and respect the same way that Jesus treated others. Well, I want to encourage you to keep a bookmark here because we're going to circle back to that in just a minute. But first, I want to mention something about chapter 12. I just want to say this about chapter 12. First, write this down. At the Lord's table, the body is what? The body is one. At the Lord's table, the body is one. Here's something I never noticed before. I always thought Paul switches topics a lot when it comes to 1 Corinthians. Because like for here, chapter 11, he's talking about communion. Oh, good teaching about communion. Chapter 12, he talks about spiritual gifts. Oh, good, good teaching about spiritual gifts. He's not switching topics. It's one topic. It's the topic of unity and division. And they're doing the same thing with spiritual gifts that they were doing with communion. There shouldn't be different classes when we gather for communion. Nor should there be different classes when it comes to spiritual gifts. The Corinthians were separating into the haves and the have-nots when it came to the Lord's Supper, and they were apparently separating into the haves and the have-nots when it came to speaking in tongues. They were dividing into these different groups. Paul's not the only preacher in the ancient world to say, hey, the body is, the, the, we people, we're kind of like a body. What is striking about Paul's teaching 
is that it was different than what most people were saying. Most people were saying, yeah, a community is kind of like a body, and here's how you can get to be more important. You can be like one of those more important parts of the body. What does Paul write? Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 24 through 26. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The Lord's table is different than other tables. At the Lord's table, idols aren't elevated. The vulnerable aren't exploited. The Lord's table, people aren't priced out of participation. And at the Lord's table, the body functions as one. All right, let's turn quickly to application. And let's start with the biblical principle. Such an important principle. The biblical principle is this. There's a place to write this in your notes. Unsolate the family. Unsolate the family. When we remain insulated, it's so easy to see others as others. It's so easy to see people as simply groups and simply classes. When I was a kid, Kennedy kids, we were insulated. We were insulated from the Pinecrest kids. We were insulated from the Cooper Poopers. We were insulated from St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. When I entered junior high, I initially saw the Pinecrest as the rich kids, Cooper Poopers as beneath me, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton as something different altogether. But before I left junior high, as I got to know people as individuals, the first girl to break my heart, Cooper Pooper. Cooper Pooper. Four of those Pinecrest kids became my best friends. And for 30 years in a row, I gathered with a bunch of those St. Elizabeth Ann Seton kids for our annual snow football game. It's amazing how things change when you get to know people as individuals, isn't it? Instead of as groups. When we begin to bridge the gaps that separate us. And get to know people as individuals. That brings us to the first of two essential skills for bridge builders. Here's number one. Bridge building skill number one. See individuals. See people as individuals. When we see somebody, when we really see somebody, we see them as an individual. And wasn't Jesus a master of this? He was a master of this. He saw people as individuals. When Jesus saw individuals with influence and wealth, He saw individuals. He saw the faith of a centurion that left him amazed. And he saw the greed in the rich young ruler that made him sad. Through the lens of scripture, we also see individuals who are poor aren't all the same. We see the faith of a widow who trusted God with her copper coins. We also see some very strong words directed at widows who weren't willing to to work. There are so many stereotypes. There are so many assumptions that are assorted, associated with class. The only way to get to know the individual is to get to know the individual. Do words like generous, skilled, hardworking, disciplined, caring, and wise appear, or do they apply to rich people or do they apply to poor people? They apply to individuals, don't they? Do words like selfish, judgmental, entitled, lazy, bitter, and foolish, do those words apply to rich people or poor people? They apply to 
individuals. When we learn people's stories, everything changes. Well, this fall, we're going to press into the issue of immigration. If you want to be better informed when we do, read the scriptures and sponsor a child. Or visit Juarez. Work with one of our partners right here in the Twin Cities who's working with refugees. Get to know people who are a part of what we're going to talk about. It makes a big difference when you do. As important it is to see individuals, the second skill is equally as important, and that is personal reflection. Personal reflection. When you enter into a real relationship with somebody who is in a different situation than you are, there are things that are going to be revealed about yourself, aren't there? Everyone says, oh, I want a seat at the table. Be careful what you wish for. Because at that table, you are highly likely to see things in yourself that you didn't know were there until you got at that table and they came to the surface. When we gather at the Lord's table, Paul instructs us to do this. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. So eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Here's another thing I never noticed before. That language about linking the Lord's Supper in an undiscerning way to becoming weak or ill or even dying, that always seemed out of place to me until started with chapter 10 and read to 11. And you see it's an echo. It's an echo of the same language that was being used for the people back in the time of Moses. This language echoes that language. There's an echo in the present about the consequences of disobedience among the Corinthian brothers and sisters that reflects what happened when the children of Israel disregarded God's instructions in the wilderness. The choice we have is the same choice that Moses extended. It's a choice between life and death, freedom and slavery. N.T. Wright puts it like this. He says, Christian sacraments, they're not magic. They don't automatically make you holy in other respects. They don't automatically bring you salvation. On the contrary, precisely because they are huge privileges, they carry corresponding responsibilities. Just as the children of Israel went slack in their responsibilities, and so almost all of them failed to reach the promised land, So Paul is anxious that Christians who are insisting on their, quote, rights and, quote, freedom may slide back into paganism and so fail to make real for themselves the full Christian inheritance that they had been promised. If we don't reflect when we come to the Lord's table, it is not the Lord's supper that we eat. Can I get an amen? And that's an invitation That's an opportunity for us to right now, before we get to the end of our lives, when there's final judgment, for us to go through that now and to be here declared not guilty as we come to Christ. Isn't that beautiful? That's beautiful. You guys, there's a seat at this table for every one of us. And what a glorious table this is. What an absolute glorious table this is. Way back in chapter 1, right at the start of his letter, Paul says, hey, you sanctified saints, you weren't called because you were all that. You weren't called because you're the smartest. You weren't at the top of the influencer list. 
we've been invited to this table by Jesus. And it's a glorious table. It's a table where you don't come to this table. It's like what Pastor Dan said. It's a round table. We don't come to this table and go, where's the head? How do I get there? This is a table where kids are welcome. This is a table where men and women are welcome. This is a table where rich and poor are welcome. It is a table where our only boast is that we have been saved by an amazing grace. What a glorious table that is and what a glorious table it will be. Because this table is just a shadow of a banquet to come when Jesus comes back and all is as it shall be. And he says, enter into your rest. Let's prepare for that day. Let's proclaim that day right now. And we're so honored, Molly, to share this day with you, along with Luke and Molly and Belle. There's a place at this table for all who can with sincerity pray the prayers that we're about to pray. One of the things we say often here at, at Emmanuel is the only person that will keep you from the Lord's table is you. If you can reflect sincerely come to the Lord's table. We'd invite you to join us.